Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today, I'll be telling the true crime story of Christian Ferguson. The story I will be pulling from the archives is over 18 years old, and it's up there as one of the hardest cases I've told so far. Together, we will dust off the cover and crack open a story that is riddled with mystery and heartache. How did nine-year-old Christian Ferguson disappear while in the care and supervision of his own father? And could a witness statement from Christian's brother turn out to be a key factor in solving the young boy's disappearance? I'm your host, Nisa. Welcome to the Lost Crimes Library. Let's unearth the mysterious disappearance of Christian Ferguson. In St. Louis, Missouri, on June 11, 2003, a father called the police to report that someone had driven off in his 1994 Ford Expedition SUV, with his nine-year-old son still in the back seat. He told the operator on the other end that he had to make a quick phone call to his son's doctor, so he left the keys in the ignition with his son in the back seat. He then got out of the car and walked over to a nearby phone booth at the intersection of Skinker and Page to place the call to the doctor. According to the boy's father, Dewan T. Ferguson, he and his son had been en route to the hospital when the car and his son, named Christian Taylor Ferguson, were stolen. When police arrived at the scene and the last known location where Christian Ferguson was seen, they began the search immediately. And within two hours, they were able to locate the stolen car. At 8 a.m., authorities found Dewan's SUV abandoned and unlocked about five miles from where it was taken. The vehicle was sitting at a cul-de-sac, where Ron Bar Lane dead ends at railroad tracks in the city of Ferguson, Missouri. When the police searched the car, with every hope that Christian was still inside, they were left disappointed by what they saw. The vehicle was filled with numerous valuable items, including a laptop computer, a camera, two cell phones, and other electronic gear. The keys were still in the ignition, but Christian was gone. If this was an intended robbery or carjacking, as Dewan made it seem, why were all of Dewan's valuable and expensive items still in his car? And why would a supposed thief steal a child, but not the expensive items that were in plain view? After the search of the vehicle, police grew more and more suspicious of Dewan Ferguson. 
Dewan Ferguson quickly drew the suspicions of the investigators assigned to Christian's missing persons case. It turned out that Dewan was in a custody battle with his ex-wife over their two sons at the time of Christian's disappearance. Not to mention, there were a few inconsistencies with Dewan's 911 call that made police focus on him as a possible suspect. Inconsistency number one. A resident who lived near the location of where the SUV was found informed the police that she had noticed that the SUV had been parked there for hours, including around the time when Dewan called 911. Inconsistency number two. Dewan Ferguson actually had a cell phone with him when he used a nearby payphone to report the alleged carjacking. Inconsistency number three. A TV news video revealed that a car belonging to a close friend of Dewan Ferguson was parked near the payphone shortly after the 911 call was made. And that same friend lived several blocks from the cul-de-sac where the car was eventually found without Christian inside. Aside from these glaring inconsistencies, the police noted that Dewan's behavior following the disappearance of his son was suspicious. On the day Christian went missing, Dewan cut short a police interview. He stopped cooperating and refused to take a lie detector test. I personally see no issue with refusing a polygraph test. After all, they aren't necessarily a reliable tool to differentiate a lie from the truth, and people can work around them if they want to. Even if I was innocent, I would never take a polygraph test because a naturally high-stress situation like a police interview or interrogation could make it appear that I was lying when really I'm just an anxious person. However, the rest of Dewan's behavior is suspicious. If he was concerned about his son's whereabouts, why would he refuse to cooperate? He was the last person to physically see Christian. Anything he noticed could have greatly helped police. The police begin putting together possible theories about what happened to Christian Ferguson that summer day. And what they piece together inevitably leads them to a familiar name. The first theory that police present is that Dewan's car was indeed carjacked with Christian in the back seat. And they propose that when the car was abandoned, Christian was scared and looking for help or for his dad and left the car to return home on his own. However, this theory is quickly removed from the list because Christian would have never been able to exit the car on his own. Here's why. Christian is severely physically and mentally disabled due to a rare and incurable metabolic condition called citrullinemia. This condition makes Christian unable to digest protein. Christian was born with citrullinemia, and with the help of close medical supervision and a program of medications, he developed normally for the first seven years of his life. However, in January 2001, he had a seizure, and as a result, he fell into a month-long coma and suffered a series of near-fatal strokes, which caused severe brain damage. By 2003, when he disappeared, he couldn't speak or swallow, and he had difficulty walking on his own. This meant that the likelihood of Christian walking out of that car on his own was very slim, and he was missing from that car because someone removed him from it. The second theory is that Dewan played a major hand in his own son's disappearance. Given that Dewan and his ex-wife were in the middle of a custody battle over their two children, this seemed like a reason to further investigate Dewan Ferguson. In fact, the history of Dewan and his ex-wife's relationship was so turbulent that police wondered if Dewan may have had motive to make his son disappear. Dewan married Christian's mother, Theda, in February 1994, four months after their son, Christian, was born. Eight months after the wedding, Theda gave birth to their son, Connor. 
In October 1997, the two separated and their marriage was annulled a year later. During the custody battle for their children, Dewan and Theta both accused one another of neglecting Christian's medical needs, among other things. In 1999, Dewan was granted full custody of Christian and Connor, and Theta was ordered to pay child support. During this time, Theta filed charges against her ex-husband. She accused him of abusing and neglecting his children. It's not clear what came of these charges if Dewan was ever investigated by Child Protective Services. However, after Theta eventually remarried, the relationship between her and Dewan seemed more amicable. Because of this more amicable relationship between parents, Theta was allowed to see her children more frequently. But it turns out that not everything was as it seemed. As police further investigated the disappearance of Christian, they discovered a multitude of disturbing information. After Christian became disabled in 2001, the state of Missouri provided home health care nurses for Christian and his family. The nurses took over almost all of his care, including feeding him until March 2003. Eventually, those services ended by the state because Dewan hadn't enrolled Christian in school. According to the Charlie Project, some of the family's nurses believed Christian was neglected. They stated his stepmother, Monica, wanted nothing to do with him. He wasn't adequately fed, and sometimes he didn't get his diapers changed for days at a time. In addition, the case summary states that throughout Christian's life, Dewan missed doctor's appointments and was inconsistent about giving his son his medicine. Christian had to be hospitalized at least twice as a result. In one incident in 2000, he claimed he was unable to fill Christian's prescriptions because the pharmacy had run out of the medications. However, this story turned out to be untrue. Christian's nurses noted that Dewan often failed to replenish his son's stock of medication when they told him it was low. Two of them started buying Christian's medicine themselves because Dewan wouldn't do it. The nurses knew that if they didn't buy it themselves, Christian would have died within 48 hours without proper medication. The discovery of this information was alarming. First, those closest to Christian claimed that Dewan was neglecting his own son, putting his life and well-being at risk on numerous occasions. If he was capable of doing it then, what makes him incapable of doing it now? And second, Christian was missing without his medication, medication he needed to survive. If Christian was believed to still be alive, police had to find him before the 48 hours was up. Although the police search for Christian and dig up as much information as they can about the days leading up to Christian's disappearance, 48 hours eventually come and go, and with it, the hope that Christian is still out there, alive. Without his medication and no significant leads, the police presumed Christian dead. But that doesn't mean the police stopped looking. By August 2003, police were still searching for Christian, but this time they were searching for his remains. After Christian went missing, investigators discovered that Christian had probably been chronically under-medicated for at least several months prior to his disappearance. Two weeks after the boy disappeared, police searched Dewan's home looking for clues and evidence. It was discovered that within two weeks of Christian's disappearance, Dewan and his family had moved out of their rental home. And Dewan even hired private investigators, not movers, to remove items from his residence. Dewan's home was searched twice for evidence relating to Christian's case. And what investigators are able to find is chilling. Among other things, 
They found urine-stained clothes and bedding, a large liquid stain on Christian's mattress as well as on the floor, and full prescription bottles that should have been used up. According to Christian's nurses, Christian was normally active on his medication, which meant he needed to be watched constantly. Without enough medication, he would become lethargic and nap most of the time, making him easier to care for. And the nurses may have been onto something because investigators discovered that the last time anyone ordered Christian's medications from the pharmacy was in late April 2003, six weeks prior to his disappearance, and the medicine was never picked up. Was it possible that Dewan was slowly trying to kill his son? At the time of Christian's disappearance, Theta, his mother, was still fighting for custody of her two sons. Although she was eventually able to see her sons more, she wanted custody to be more equal, and she was beginning to fear for the safety and well-being of her children. However, she was forbidden by a judge to see them except for during specific visiting times. I couldn't find out why the judge was so strictly against her seeing her sons. From the articles I could find, nothing hinted that she was endangering her children in any way. Her visitation was growing more and more limited. It got to the point that she hadn't seen Christian for three whole months before he vanished, and this was all because Dewan had missed their two scheduled visits. The last time that Theta would visit her sons was on March 2003, a few months prior to Christian's disappearance and a little over a week after Christian's nursing care stopped. During her visit, she noticed some alarming things. She noticed that her two boys were unkempt and dirty. Christian, who had to wear diapers due to his condition, had a diaper rash and he had visibly lost weight. According to Theta, Christian also smelled of ammonia and was unusually clumsy, signs that he was experiencing a citrullinemia episode. When she noticed all of this, she took Christian to the hospital to be treated. After being treated, Dewan picked up Christian from the hospital and took him home. That would be the last time that Theta saw her oldest son. In April 2003, Theta filed for custody again because Dewan refused to let her see her two sons. On June 9th, two days before Christian vanished, a judge ordered Dewan to follow the visitation schedule with his ex-wife, or he would be held in contempt of court. The next scheduled visit was supposed to be June 14th. However, by then it was too late. Christian had already disappeared. Sometime during the investigation into Christian's disappearance, it's not entirely clear when exactly, but Christian's brother Connor was interviewed by police. Because the two boys shared a bedroom, police wanted to know if they could get any useful information from a possible witness to a crime. According to Connor, early in the morning while it was still dark outside, Dewan entered their room. While Dewan was in the room, he wrapped Christian in a blanket, carried him out, and drove away. Connor's stepsister, who was a teenager at the time, corroborated Connor's statement, saying that she saw Dewan leave the family home around 4 a.m. Connor had more to tell the police. According to the Charlie Project, Connor also stated that two days before Christian's disappearance, he noticed his brother's gastric feeding tube was missing. Police found the tube during a search of the Ferguson residence and stated it was covered with bodily fluids, had tool marks on the end, and looked as if it had been forcibly removed. Connor added in the statement to police that his big brother appeared to be very sick and malnourished in the days leading up to his disappearance. According to Connor, 
he could hear his brother moaning continuously. He claims that he told his stepmother Monica about it, and she told Connor that she knew what was going on already and that he needed to stay away from Christian. But Connor didn't listen. He went to check on his brother for himself, and what he saw must have been so scary. When he checked on his brother, he said he noticed that Connor stopped moaning and that his eyes were rolled to the back of his head. In the aftermath of Christian's vanishing, Dewan's mother and stepfather got custody of Connor, and he lived with them until 2007 when he was returned to the care of his mother, Theda. A year after Christian's disappearance and presumed death, Dewan Ferguson and Monica Ferguson were indicted, but not for child neglect and or first-degree murder, but instead for federal fraud charges. Apparently, the couple used a false social security number on a car loan application in 2002 and forged Dewan's elderly grandmother's signature to co-sign the same loan. In 2005, Dewan pleaded guilty to three charges, served eight months in federal prison, and was released. Monica only went through a pretrial diversion program and was not sentenced to jail. Several years passed, years filled with mourning for closure and justice. For a long time, it appeared that Dewan was going to get away with what he had done. It took 16 years for law enforcement to finally charge Dewan Ferguson in the presumed death of Christian. In October 2019, Dewan was charged with one count of first-degree murder and was held without bail according to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. The probable cause statement said that Dewan failed to provide Christian with proper medication and nutrition between January 16, 2001 and June 18, 2003. That's two and a half years. In that statement, it also says that he deliberately let his son die of citrullinemia, and they think Christian died on June 10, 2003, and Dewan concealed his body and made up the kidnapping and carjacking story. It's not made clear what led prosecutors to charge Dewan. It would be interesting to know what evidence or other information they had that made them feel confident taking this case to trial. To me, the circumstances of the case, along with Dewan's clear neglect, makes me confident that he killed his son with intent, all because he didn't want to take care of him anymore. But lawyers tend to need more than circumstantial evidence to feel confident trying the case. After all, no one would want the jury to find reasonable doubt. When the charges were made public, Theta said, quote, I knew that justice was on its way, but I'm in shock. I feel supported and I'm excited. I'm a lot of different things right now because I don't know how to be in this place, but I'm glad that I'm here, end quote. I could only imagine the mixed emotions one would feel, knowing that justice is coming, but also that the person responsible for your child's death is your ex-husband and the father of your child. A year later, in October 2020, charges were dismissed against Dewan Ferguson. And if this case wasn't already a roller coaster ride, it turned out that the charges were refiled the next day. In March 2020, the trial was set to begin. However, the entire schedule was to be thrown out because Assistant St. Louis County Prosecutor Robert Steele dismissed the murder charge. The defense attorney for Dewan was asked about why this was happening, and defense attorney Joel Short said, quote, There's two reasons that I can think of. One is judge shopping. They're not happy with the ruling the judge has made, or they're simply not comfortable with that judge, so you dismiss and refile delaying the process or at the time of trial, your motions or witnesses aren't available. Is it illegal? No. Is it okay? 
I would argue no. It's delaying the process, and in most cases, the individual is confined, end quote. In 2020, a spokesman for the St. Louis County Prosecutor's Office said the move is simply procedural. When pressed by a reporter for more information, he said that's all he could say until after trial, but he was adamant that it wasn't about shopping for a different judge. According to reporting by Chris Hayes for Fox 2 News, this decision will delay the Dewan Ferguson case for months potentially, as everything starts over, from the selection of a judge to a new grand jury in an entirely new arraignment. Christian Ferguson is still missing. If you have any information that could lead to the recovery of his remains, you can contact the St. Louis Police Department at 314-444-5620. If you want to interact with the podcast on social media or share with me some of your own theories about the cases, be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at the LCL Pod. Don't forget to share the podcast so we can get more attention for these very important cases. If you'd like to listen to more episodes of the Lost Crimes Library, you can find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. And don't forget to follow the Lost Crimes Library so you won't miss any new episodes. Thank you for supporting the show. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.